Welcome to Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. I'm Nakin. And I'm Pranav. Today's episode is our third episode of the COVID-19 series, where we talk current events with guests in different fields affected by the pandemic. Our guest on today's podcast is Dr. Rena Doshi, epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Doshi on April 23rd. While Dr. Doshi isn't working directly on the COVID-19 outbreak, she shared her perspective on some of the larger challenges of the work epidemiologists do and how the pandemic has put, the, has put some other important public health initiatives on the back burner. Dr. Doshi also walks us through living in the Democratic Republic of Congo for six years and the importance of vaccines for preventable diseases such as polio, measles, and tetanus. So without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Rena Doshi. Hi, Dr. Doshi. Thank you for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. Thanks for having me on the show. Because this is a UCLA-themed podcast, one of the things we wanted to do was ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the the general UCLA application. And we think it will serve as a, a great introduction and way to connect with our listeners. So the prompt is, describe an example of your leadership experience in which you have positively influenced others, helped resolve disputes, or contributed to group efforts over time? Um, okay, that's, that's, that's a tough question. Um, but I'd have to say that one of the things that I'm most proud about, about some of my work that I've done in DRC, um, with the DRC, the UCLA DRC research program, is that it's really a training program for both UCLA students like myself. I started there when I was a student, um, but also for Congolese researchers. So what was really neat about our program is that we often took um, junior Congolese staff and trained them to work on field, uh, epi field work methodology that we learned, you know, through our experiences, but also at our coursework at UCLA. Um, so we really trained them um, to blossom just like us, like what we were doing into field epidemiologists. So they also trained us too and really helped us navigate the Congolese health system. You know, we also encouraged them to publish and submit abstracts to international conferences like the um, Tropical Medicine Conference. Um, and really try to support them and help them gain the experiences they wanted. So I'm really excited because during my time there, we had two laboratory directors. One recently began his PhD in public health in Japan with a full scholarship. Um, and then our other lab director actually manages the entire lab network for the Ebola response in Eastern DRC right now. So it's been pretty exciting. Wow, it's great to see the, the impact. So let's go all the way back to Pepperdine. Uh, you were a major at psycho, in psychobiology out there. Um, what were you kind of thinking, um, majoring in psychobiology? Did you know you wanted to do a career in sciences? What was your, your outlook into the future like? So I, I think I was just like any other science major. I started out as a biology major. Um, I had some personal issues my first, my freshman year of college. And so I decided that I needed to boost my GPA because I wanted to go to med school. 
Um, and so I decided to start taking psychology classes and I really, really liked them. And so I went to uh, the chair of the psychology department and I said to them, I really want to create this neuroscience major or psychobiology major that I had seen that other schools have, like UCLA I know has as an undergrad major. And they were like, you know, that's great. Why don't you do that? And so I combined the two uh, programs into one, psychology and biology, and created this degree, which I, I think I was the first student to do it called physiological psychology. So I think that's when I really started thinking about public health. I kind of had an idea what epidemiology was, but I wasn't entirely sure. I still had medical school in my head, just like most aspiring public health students at that age. And so I decided, let me try this out and then I will apply to MPH programs, Master in Public Health programs, and go from there. And that's kind of what led me to the, the career of public health. Speaking about uh, an MPH, you ended up doing your MPH at Boston University in international health. And so what kind of drew you to an MPH and why, uh, and why the focus on international health? So I kind of felt like my two majors at Pepperdine, the psychology and the biology, were as close as I could get to public health without really realizing it. And so um, it just seemed like the next logical step while I was trying to decide what I really wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to do global health work. That was sure. And so I only looked at programs when I was applying that had a program in global health. Um, and BU just seemed to make the most sense at that time. Um, their global health program was really strong. The department was the largest uh, department at the school at the time. I'm not sure to this day. And so it just made sense for me. I wanted as much international experience as possible. And so after, after your time at, at BU, as kind of it's wrapping up, you're, what were you thinking and did you know you wanted to work for the CDC? Um, not necessarily. Um, I wasn't exactly sure if I was, I had, at this point I had started taking a lot of epidemiology courses. I realized that epidemiology was probably the direction I wanted to go to. And so I was still debating between medical school and doing a PhD program. So I applied to this fellowship program at CDC um, at the time, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was called the James A. Ferguson Emerging Infectious Disease Fellowship. Um, it was a really neat fellowship. It was two months. We got placed in a department, and I luckily got placed in the Global AIDS Program uh, department, where they hired me on and I stayed for two years. And it was during that time that I really thought about which direction do I want to go. Do I want to go the medical school route, or do I want to go to the FB route? And I guess that would be kind of helpful for students. It sounded like medical school was still in your mind, uh, graduating Pepperdine, and then even after getting your MPH, kind of what was your thought process like? Um, ultimately, what were the key factors in, in deciding that medical school wasn't right for you? It, I mean, to this day, it's hard to say, um, but I like to talk about that and mention that medical school was on my mind because I think especially you know, 10 to 15 years ago, a lot of people were thinking, let me get an MPH first and then maybe I'll go to medical school. And, you know, I was one of those. So I like to be very honest about it. But I think I realized that I had these really focused interests 
in infectious diseases, particularly in these special pathogen diseases, um, such as Ebola or monkeypox. And I realized that whichever route I went, um, I would still be doing some form of epidemiology. And so that's when I started exploring epidemiology programs. And so during your time, your first stint with the CDC through that fellowship, um, and, and I guess maybe to take it back, could you explain to, to some of our listeners, the very remaining few who are not aware of what the CDC is, what they are and what they do? Sure. So CDC stands for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So centers, plural, there are quite a few centers that do different things all in public health. So really it's our U.S. public health agency. Sure. And so why is it then not called the CDCP? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just pulling your leg there. I, I always <laughs> had to ask. Uh, so during your time at the CDC, you got to work on the U.S. president's emergency plan. I think it's PEPFAR is the PEPFAR, situation. yes. Uh, so what does a, a typical emergency plan look like? And uh, what were some of the challenges in, in getting that and working through that? So we were funded by PEPFAR, so it's a little different. So what I was working on, I was actually working in a laboratory. So uh, PEPFAR will uh, supply, they, they fund a lot, pretty much all of, much of the global HIV work all over the world. And um, one of the things that I was working on was taking new HIV rapid tests that test for the presence of antibodies, HIV antibodies and actually validating them in the lab. So we had many, many samples, and we would test these new test kits that would come on the market and then approve them and say, yes, PEPFAR-supported countries can use them or not. And then what were the, the, the specific countries that these kits went out to, and, and what was the process in, in figuring out which countries needed the kits? I assume there's a limited supply. I mean, it depended on the country. I mean, the, the countries were, you know, they would purchase them themselves. So it depended, but they would be able to use PEPFAR money to buy these kits. Um, but, you know, usually with these countries, I mean, it's often about cost and what is the cheapest. So we wanted to maximize sensitivity and specificity of this test, making sure that it was accurate, but then also making sure that it was affordable for countries. And so as you were kind of working through some of these challenges at, at the CDC, um, you ended up applying and getting into UCLA's uh, program, PhD program in epidemiology. So what made you consider uh, a PhD program and uh, why, what made you choose UCLA? Um, so I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I knew I wanted to work on viral special pathogens such as Ebola or monkeypox. Um, and, you know, before the large West African Ebola outbreak, there really weren't a lot of researchers in the U.S. that were working exclusively on these pathogens. You know, when I was searching for MPH programs, I had briefly considered UCLA, but then I ruled it out because they didn't have a global health program at the time. Um, so it really wasn't on my initial list. And then, you know, I started doing research, looking at faculty members that were actually doing work in the area I wanted to do, and I came across Dr. Anne Ramoyne, who um, is now, and was, but is now a professor at the Fielding School of Public Health and Epidemiology. I found her work um, on monkeypox in DRC, 
And, you know, I just had this feeling, this is it, this is where I want to be. And I started bombarding her with emails. Um, and she didn't respond initially. And she'll tell this story too, whenever she introduces me places, um, that Rena was super persistent and I finally responded. And of course ended up at UCLA. So I do as people, and just to add to that, as people are asking me for advice about applying to PhD programs and things like that, I always say be persistent. Um, and I think Dr. Ramoyne does too. <laughs> I, I think we didn't have to do that when we reached out to you, I think luckily. <laughs> uh, you're really responsive. Um, so, I tried. <laughs> so I think uh, you, you've kind of highlighted your interest in biopathogens. You mentioned Ebola and monkeypox particularly. Um, and then you had the chance, as you mentioned earlier, to work on immunizations um, in the DRC uh, with respect to monkeypox. Can you talk a little bit about what makes uh, those two pathogens that you've highlighted unique or, or, or fascinating to you? Yeah, you know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, they, they come from, you know, both come from this country, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I ended up spending four years living and working um, beginning my PhD. And it's just fascinating because all of these pathogens seem to have originated from there. And they're often very deadly, Ebola especially, monkeypox less so. Um, they also both come from a zoonotic origins, meaning from animals. So the virus at some point jumped from, human, from animals to humans. And so I find that fascinating as well. And so tell us a little bit about some of the research you did in, in the DRC um, and, and maybe a little bit about UCLA's program. Were you one of the few in your program to end up, you know, traveling internationally for and doing field level research or is that common for uh, PhD candidates? So I don't think uh, at the time it was common. It has become more common. So one of Dr. Ramoyne's students was a year ahead of me. And she left for DRC about a year before I did. And then I was slated to replace her and she was gonna come back and start working on her dissertation. Um, but she ended up staying and I'm so glad she did because I ended up having a support system. And she actually still lives there and is the country director for the UCLA DRC research program. So the plan was meet for me, for me was to go for a year and then during this year, craft my dissertation proposal, come back, and then maybe return to do my research. And I ended up really never coming back. Um, so as I mentioned, I wanted to work on these special pathogens like Ebola or monkeypox. But when I arrived, our work actually started shifting to vaccine preventable disease work. Um, we had funding to support polio eradication activities in DRC um, and also provide support for other vaccine preventable diseases like measles, rubella, tetanus. Um, and DRC had been experiencing these large-scale measles outbreaks since I believe about 2009. Um, and I arrived in about 2012 during the middle of it. And you know, they continue to experience these large outbreaks. Um, so in the end, based on the needs of the country, most of my work, most of my initial work, I should say, the first two years was focused on polio, measles, rubella, and tetanus. It'd be interesting, at least for me, to learn a little bit more about your four years living in, in the DRC, just someone who's always lived in California for college or <laughs> home. And then on, on the measles and, and vaccine preventable diseases front, I think in the US, 
Um, it was declared eliminated, I think, back in the 2000s, maybe late 90s. Um, but in, in DRC, you mentioned that it was persistent throughout, you know, the late 2000s. Maybe, you know, your thoughts on that. Um, and it looks like there might be a resurgence in, in measles in the U.S. right now. Yeah, so let me start a little about with my time, uh, you know, in DRC. So I remember arriving in Kinshasa in 2012. And I remember as we landed, it was completely dark. Obviously, there was some kind of electrical outage. And, you know, I remember thinking, you know, what am I getting myself into? I don't know when I'm going to go home next. Um, and at the time, there was no tarmac for the plane to land, it just landed on gravel. So it was also a rough landing. Since there's a new airport and there is a beautiful tarmac. Um, and the electricity I would say is probably better. But, you know, I mean, living in DRC is challenging, um, but also it was amazing. Um, the basic infrastructure is just not there. You know, electricity and water really are luxuries there. I lived in Kinshasa, it's the capital, you know, there are over 12 million people there. Um, but I lived in the expat part of town. Um, I moved three times in four years for various reasons. And you know, the first apartment I lived in was on a power line with really inconsistent electricity. We often didn't have electricity at night, which was very annoying. Um, and it also meant our water was affected because the water uh, pump couldn't function when there was no electricity. And so I remember once we went a whole week without water and I joined a gym just so I could shower. And then the next week we broke our lease and moved. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, there were still challenges even living in the expat part of town. Um, but it was also, the work was just really exciting. Our team was really good at field work and doing, doing these really large sero surveys where we actually take blood from participants and then test them for antibodies to different diseases. So our first large sero survey, um, we tested for measles, rubella, tetanus, and polio. Um, so it was, it was a pretty exciting time. And just back to uh, answering the question about whether students go there, since we started, me and the current country director were the first two people there and now i think they've had over 10 students that have spent time there not necessarily lived there for years at a time but it spent summers there or a semester there um we've even allowed medical students to do rotations there for the summer if they're interested so it's not it's expanded outside of the School of Public Health to also other programs at UCLA. Addressing the the measles comment and right. preventable diseases, um, curious on your thoughts there. So because there was this large outbreak of measles, um, it made sense that my dissertation would be focused on measles, um, and that's what I ended up spending the last couple of years of my time in DRC working on. Um, you know, I worked really closely with the Ministry of Health, which is, you know, the country's national health department, to craft something that they were interested in um, and really they hoped would help them figure out why this outbreak was going on. 
And one of the things I did was a vaccine effectiveness study. So it looked to see if in a field setting, the vaccine was actually effective. And, you know, I wasn't actually taking the vaccine and testing it. So we can't say for sure what was going on. But using some of the country's surveillance data, um, we were able to calculate an estimate of the vaccine effectiveness. And the measles vaccine is a really effective vaccine. Um, the efficacy is approximately 95%. And our study showed that the effectiveness was closer to 70%, 75%, depending on the year. And so that could partially explain some of the outbreaks. We can't say for sure because, again, we weren't testing the vaccine to see if there was any issues. But as I mentioned earlier, DRC um, is challenging because of the issues of electricity and water and things like that. And so that affects their ability to take the vaccine and move it to some of these remote locations. DRC is the size of Western Europe. And so the logistics of moving vaccine that requires a cold chain um, meaning the vaccine needs to be kept at a certain temperature and moving it into these remote parts of the country where sometimes there are even no roads um, can be very challenging and that can also decrease the potency of the vaccine. So that was one hypothesis that we came up with for why there might be some, why there might be ongoing measles outbreaks. I mean, the, the main thing though to mention is that the immuniz the routine immunization program that is um, when children should go into a health center to get vaccinated is just not strictly, you know, strictly enforced. Um, it's hard to get people um, to bring their kids to facilities that may be really far away or difficult to access. And so the kids may miss their vaccine. Um, and if they're not protected, that's when you're going to start seeing these large outbreaks. So there's a couple of reasons why this is happening and just a couple of hypotheses. But the main, the main reason is that this routine immunization system needs to be strengthened. And that's kind of what um, our current, my current position is. Not focused specifically on measles, but our entire group, the Global Immunization Division, works to focus on strengthening these routine immunization systems so that all of these children are vaccinated. So I guess what would be helpful is you talked about Kinshasa um, and its population of 12 million. How was the DRC organized and, and what was its local economy like? So Kinshasa is the capital, yeah, as you mentioned, and it's the population is likely over 12 million. Um, they actually haven't done a census in a really long time, so it's hard to say what the exact population is. Um, but then there's all of these smaller, you know, villages throughout the country that are in these very remote areas. And so oftentimes the only way to get to them might be through, the, the main trade would be done through probably the rivers. Um, and then also flights if there's an airport in that area. Um, so in these remote areas, is trade occurring? Not so much, no. You know, right off of the river, you'll see pockets of trade activities. Um, and then in the larger cities, you'll also see it, but in the remote areas, no. Um, and so it's hard for people to even access them. You know, measles is often done 
um, through mass campaigns, measles vaccination. And sometimes they, if people can't access some of these areas, they may overlook them completely. And that's when kids don't get vaccinated. And so as you were kind of working through a lot of these challenges in terms of helping inform the, the local government, partnering with other NGOs, uh, your time at UCLA was, was probably coming up and you ended up staying after finishing your degree for a couple more years. What kind of inspired that? And did you know that, were you thinking you were going to stay in the DRC long-term? Yeah. So back in 2014 through 16, during the large West African Ebola outbreak, a lot of people don't realize that there's actually a really small outbreak, Ebola outbreak, um, in the northwestern part of DRC in the Ecuador province. And so that happened while I was there. And then about a year later, we received funding to do a sero survey and collect blood from survivors, Ebola survivors. And so that was about the time I was debating what to do next. I had just um, graduated and I had decided I would stay on for a little bit longer but I wasn't sure how long and the work just started getting really interesting um, not that it wasn't interesting before and I loved it before as well but as we started moving into the Ebola work um, I knew I wasn't going anywhere um, and that really that really kept me around for another two years before I decided to apply to the epidemic intelligence service program at CDC. And I guess you highlighted a, an interesting note right there that most of the world knows about this large Ebola outbreak. And, and, and the U.S., I think it happened towards the back end in, in November of 2016. Uh, but you mentioned there were smaller outbreaks uh, up in the north of the DRC. How did that entire uh, process play out in the DRC? And, and how did that spread occur? Well, Currently now, DRC has had 10 Ebola outbreaks. Um, so they're well-seasoned in working on Ebola. So that being said, when the West Africa outbreak happened, they started sending their researchers who had worked on Ebola in DRC to West Africa. Um, so then when this small Ebola outbreak began in Boende, um, it was a little bit challenging because everybody was so focused on West Africa and nobody was pay paying attention to DRC. And luckily it was in a more remote location so it didn't take off and the outbreak was contained very quickly within months. But um, it definitely wasn't on most people's radars because they were so focused on the West Africa outbreak and understandably so. So you ended up, as you mentioned, uh applying for a job at the CDC and, and you ended up getting it. So can you tell us a little bit about what the EIS department does and, and some of the work you did on global HIV and TB? So, um, so first what happened is I ended up, I, during about, about the time, a year after the Boende outbreak that I mentioned, I applied to the EIS program, which is the Epidemic Intelligence Service Program. It's a two-year training program. Um, where they train people on field epidemiology. You know, it's a mix of a little bit of everything, classroom work, um, field work, um, and oftentimes during outbreaks or responses, uh, EIS officers are the first people that are deployed. 
And so I, it's a matching system. So we rank positions and they rank us and I got matched to um, the division of global HIV and TB, which is interestingly the same division that I was in years before, um, but a different group. I was now on the surveillance and epi team where I was doing a little bit, I was not working in a lab. Um, so that being said, you know, I had a great experience and I got to work on a lot of different things. I had gone to UCLA thinking I was going to work on monkeypox. I even got vaccinated for smallpox, which um, they think protects against monkeypox because I thought I was going to do field work um, with monkeypox, um, which never happened during my four years living in DRC. And so when they asked for volunteers to go on a monkeypox outbreak in the Republic of Congo, which is the country just across the river from DRC, I volunteered and I went and got to uh, investigate a monkeypox outbreak. Um, you know, I also got experience with other responses. There was a large cholera outbreak in Haiti in 2016, um, right after Hurricane Matthew. And I got to go down there and help with that. So, you know, being an EIS officer was fun in that, you know, we were always um, some of the first people called if there was a response. That being said, I also got to work on some regular HIV activities too. And then now in your current role as an epidemiologist in the Global Immunization Division, uh, what does your day-to-day -day look like? And then how has your work uh, changed in this uh, COVID environment? Yeah, so after the EIS program, I ended up in the Global Immunization Division. And this is the division that focuses on vaccine-preventable diseases. So it was really great to work in HIV, but for me, it was like coming home to my roots, mm -hmm. what I had spent the most time working on in DRC. Um, so, you know, the, the Global Immunization Division has different teams focusing on different things, you know, polio eradication, elimination of measles and rubella, um, you know, our work involves working with the local ministries of health um, in various countries uh, to strengthen routine immunization programs, like I mentioned earlier, um, and also surveillance, and to respond to outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases. And, you know, since I had spent my time working on Ebola and DRC, Ebola is now considered a vaccine-preventable disease because we have a safe and effective vaccine. So during the last year and a half, I've actually been working on Ebola vaccine. So for me, it was kind of perfect. It's, you know, marrying the work I wanted to do with Ebola, but also my previous work with vaccine preventable diseases. So the last year has been a little bit different than um, it probably will be over for the next couple of years because DRC has been fighting their 10th Ebola outbreak um, in the North Kivu province. Um, so I've spent the last year deployed uh, between uh, DRC and Geneva at the World Health Organization, you know, just helping provide support to help improve the vaccination activities during this response. That's interesting. I think one question that I had was kind of what were the processes or, or, or challenges and, and how did Ebola eventually become a vaccine-preventable disease? What was the, the, um, that one moment or the, the key breakthrough? So during the West African Ebola outbreak, there was a large push to start developing vaccines. 
you know, this outbreak went on for over two years and everybody, the global community really agreed there needs to be a vaccine. So there were multiple, multiple vaccines that were deployed in various clinical trials in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Um, and this particular vaccine was shown to be safe and effective in a trial in Guinea. So when Ebola hit again in the northwestern part of DRC in 2018, in Ecuador again, a little bit of a different location, um, they decided to deploy the vaccine on a compassionate use basis, meaning that the vaccine isn't licensed, but we will administer it if the individual agrees to, to accept the vaccine and sign an informed consent and things like that. And so they deployed it. Um, the outbreak was contained in a couple of months. And then uh, a week after it was declared over, the North Kivu outbreak was declared. And that outbreak has been going on for over a year and a half now. It's been particularly challenging because it's in a region that's very insecure. Um, it's essentially a war zone. Um, so it's now been used in that outbreak for the past year and a half. Um, I believe over 300,000 people have been vaccinated. And the vaccine was just licensed by the FDA back in December. We've talked about some of the countries and, and why it's more challenging to administer uh, specific vaccinations, whether, you know, individuals are living remotely or, or it's a war zone. I think one thing that was interesting that you noted was that when compassionate use was brought up, individuals could sign waivers and, and they would get the vaccination. Um, is there a stigma in specific countries or, or a need to educate um, specific individuals where it's harder to get those waivers and, and, and get the vaccinations out in those use cases? So it depends on the waiver you're talking about. If you're talking about an individual signing the informed consent, meaning that they understand the risks and they understand the benefits, mm -hmm. I think it depends on the community. In, in DRC, in particular in the North Kivu outbreak, it's been incredibly challenging because the community does not trust the government and everybody is there you know hundreds of people are there at the same time trying to contain this outbreak and so i think that there's a lot of community mistrust and it's been challenging to get people to accept vaccination and the other thing too is you don't want to coerce someone who doesn't feel comfortable doing it um so it depends and I think North Kivu was exceptionally hard. And then I guess what's been your primary concern during uh, this pandemic? I can assume that it's kind of shifted each country's kind of response and, and probably ordering or ranking what their, their specific health concerns are within their nation. Yeah, I mean, you had also asked that question, how has your work changed? And I mean, Countries are at various stages in their own epidemic right now. Um, I think a lot of the African countries that I tend to support have learned from the US and Europe and Asia and really started these containment efforts early. Um, in D DRC, for example, there's less than 400 cases at this time of COVID-19. Um, but because countries are so focused on these containment efforts, some of the daily work is really being postponed. You know. 
we're going to see many polio campaigns postponed and measles vaccination campaigns postponed. And when this is all over, we're going to have a lot of work to do. And it makes our work really important. And, and uh, if you can comment, I'd be curious to, to learn kind of how have you been planning for, for post-COVID and, and, and dealing with that work that's going to be there? You know, I mean, just keeping in contact with countries um, just to see where they are at the, the various stages. But as I mentioned, I mean, the countries are also overwhelmed with their own outbreak. So it's hard. One of the things I, I did want to ask about is the, uh, the WHO, so the World Health Organization. So recently they've, they've been in the news because um, the current administration has threatened to, to pull all funding from them. Um, and they've even been blamed for a lack of transparency and, and not shutting down China sooner. And you have experience working with the WHO uh, during your, your time in Kinshasa and, and wanted to get your take on um, how they've partnered with you and, and what their responsibility was during that time and if you think that they were an effective partner. You know, WHO um, has been one of our partners for the, since the beginning, I believe, and um, they were one of our UCLA partners and still are. Um, and a CDC partner as well. And their work is important. I mean, they're currently uh, working on Ebola. I mean, they're the co-leads with the government working on Ebola right now um, in the Northeastern, in the North Kivu outbreak. Um, you know, they work on measles, they work on polio. Um, they're working on outbreaks across the world. So it's important that they continue to be able to work on those. And then before we kind of go to our final questions, I guess, from, from your perspective, um, what would be your advice to any student who's maybe entering UCLA um, as a psychobio major? I looked up Pepperdine doesn't have it, uh, okay. <laughs> unfortunately, or entering UCLA um, on the MPH side um, or, or entering UCLA on the PhD side to um, and, and it has interest in, in what you're doing or in epidemiology? Um, you know, I, I think it's important to think about your interests and especially if you're considering doing a PhD program to really know it's the direction you wanna go and what you really wanna do. I always tell people, uh, if you're not sure, then you're not ready to do it. Um, you know, I, for the longest time I wasn't sure. And so I knew I wasn't ready. And it was when I found my place at UCLA that I knew that this was the right path for me. And I'm glad I chose it. You mentioned uh, kind of UCLA as being formative. What was your favorite memory there? And who would you say is your favorite UCLA Bruin? I think I have a lot of favorite memories, but my most memorable ones are from- We can go top two. My <laughs> my time in Kinshasa, um, especially when Dr. Moyne was actually there. Uh, you know, she would make frequent visits um, throughout the year. And it was fun because 
it was exciting because it was me, um, the country director, Nicole, and Dr. Amoyne um, sitting around, you know, planning for these large studies. Um, and it was just, it was a time where you, you got to know each other and I, be, I made really close friends out of that. Um, and also some of our, our dinner dates and our nights um, in Kinshasa, just enjoying a bottle of wine at a restaurant. I can't think of one specific one, but there were many of those nights <laughs> because there was nothing else to do there. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And then I guess your favorite Bruin. You know, I feel left out because I didn't go to undergrad at UCLA. So I don't know all of the Bruins, but I loved the bear. And I know he's the one, he's, he's the main Bruin, right? <laughs> he, he is, Joe Bruin. Let's, let's hope he, uh, there's not going to be any zoonotic diseases coming. We don't want, no, we don't want him to get sick. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. But before we let you go, feel free to give us a 30-second plug for something going on in your life right now. So I would say that everybody should look up the UCLA DRC research program because they're doing really great work. And although they're mostly focused on DRC right now, they're starting a healthcare worker sero survey at UCLA um, for all these healthcare workers in the LA area to see if they have antibodies to COVID-19. So that's really exciting. And they are raising money for it at this time. Thanks again to Dr. Rena Doshi for joining us on the podcast. And make sure to check out cdc.gov for more information about COVID-19 and to learn more about the Global Immunization Division. As always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or guest recommendations at Bruin, the number one, here at gmail.com. And make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you enjoyed learning more about Awesome Bruin. This is Nakin Bandari signing off, and hopefully everything we talked about today didn't go ruin one ear and out the other.